0: Hello, and welcome to the Baseload podcast, where you'll hear common sense and unfiltered commentary on the Australian energy sector. My name is Ben Beattie, I'm an engineer, and I'm sceptical of everything.
1: Uh, so load shedding was a possibility we were preparing for. Um, I'm confident that that would have avoided blackouts, but I didn't want to go down the load shedding line, uh, line either. And working together, we managed to avoid that. No load shedding uh, and no blackouts.
0: Like a deer in the headlights, Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen differentiating between load shedding and blackouts when, of course, they're the same thing. That clip is taken from Minister Bowen's National Press Club address in June 2022. Minister Bowen was referring to the period in June when the national electricity market was suspended. Uh, There's many factors coming into this, uh, and we're going to read a- through a few of them now from industry analyst Ben Skinner of the Australian Energy Council. With a combination of coal plant outages, fuel shortages, high demand and transmission outages, Queensland electricity prices reached very high and sustained levels in the lead up to the weekend of 11-12 June. These were enough to trigger the cumulative price threshold at 18.50 hours on the 12th of June. The CPT operates when a region's average price exceeds 674 megawatts per hour over a rolling week. You can see from that short summary that the market suspension was price-related Uh, Ben Skinner continues. The price cap destroyed the market's ability to self-manage the winter energy shortage. Normally when a generator's fuel is constrained, it recognises a higher opportunity cost by rebidding higher into the market, which results in the dispatch process finding another energy source that is less energy limited. This process works remarkably well, but requires the market to have freedom to realise progressively higher prices, and for generators to bid and set prices at least as high as the highest short-run marginal cost that is not subject to an energy limit. Here, Ben Skinner's setting up uh, the rationale for the price threshold. Uh, He goes on further to explain why it didn't work in this case. However, after 1850 hours on 12th of June, generators found the process could not work. No matter how high they rebid, they found themselves dispatched to an unsustainably high level of output. Ultimately, they had no choice but to withdraw the capacity to stop their energy exhausting, which, were it to occur, would lead to an even more serious crisis. Instead, they had no choice but to withdraw from the dispatch process and leave it to AMO to determine when to dispatch them via the Direction Power. Daniel Westerman, Australian Energy Market Operators CEO.
1: Good afternoon, today AMO has suspended the national electricity market. This decision was made because it was impossible to operate the system under current conditions while ensuring reliable, secure supply of electricity to Australian homes and businesses.
0: In other words, generators were offering their output at very high prices. And that would be because of A, I'm running out of fuel, so please don't make me run unless you really, really need me to. Or B, my fuel costs a lot of money, and I'm not going to make my money back on the wholesale price as it is under this price cap. As a result, those generators said, well, I might as well just not generate. Therefore, AMO was forced to suspend the market and just tell which generators to generate manually. Under those conditions... The generators are allowed to make a claim for reimbursement for the actual cost of generation. And, and that process is going to unfold over the next few months.
1: This is literally whether we live or die, whether or not life can be sustained on the planet, and whether or not the level of prosperity that I have enjoyed, that Adam has enjoyed, that we hope to bequeath to our kids, continues.
0: Catherine Murphy of the Guardian Australia on her podcast uh, in the weeks leading up to the Glasgow climate change meeting. Some might call that an exaggeration or hyperbole. I don't know. I don't know if she means it or not. It's hard to tell. Maybe she does. I'm the last person to try and hold back somebody's opinion. I actually disagree with policies that restrict uh, the media and politicians' outbursts on social media. I think it's important for uh, the regular people like us to, I don't know, get some insights into how how people think. I think that's only fair. I'm quite sure I'll be labeled a denier or at the very least a skeptic for uh, challenging Catherine Murphy's assumptions. That's okay though. I'm pretty sure the science in capitals with air quotes is on my side on this one. What this form of extremism leads to though is a form of totalitarianism in not just the uh, the politics but in the culture and And now even coming down to the engineering of our electricity grids, American author and commentator Ted Nordhaus discussing this very issue on the Decouple podcast.
2: Uh, On the other hand, when you're like, the world is going to collapse, human civilizations can't survive because we're going to run out of food or we're going to run out of stuff or climate change is going to result in the collapse of human societies. Therefore, you must accept my sweeping agenda. To reorganize the entire world today, again, you should be, you know, one should be skeptical of that claim, whether it comes from eco-modernists or uh, degrowthers, whether it comes from liberals or conservatives, because it is actually um, an authoritarian claim. It grounds a kind of claim about the future in science, which is always, always super, super dodgy when you get to it. And then says, "Our science says we have to do that, this, or the world will end." And anyone tell anyone, time anyone says that to you, you should resist it, because it is a fundamentally sort of it is an an effort to sort of trump sort of pluralism uh, and democratic uh, kind of decision making, uh, just just sort of all of the uncertainty that we know is in any future. Uh, we're heading towards, with a phony scientific claim.
0: Uh, That seems to me to be a fine rebuttal of Catherine Murphy's nonsense. So what can we expect from Chris Bowen, the energy minister, and what are his plans? Let's take a look at transmission.
1: Our grid is not fit for purpose, and our rewiring the nation program will make it so.
0: The government's rewiring the nation is a new bureaucracy dedicated to spending $20 billion on new transmission in Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia and Queensland. Uh, The intent is to accelerate several ISP projects by decades. Um, Instead of three projects completed by 2030, according to the AMO plans, nine new transmission lines are pledged to be completed in the same time frame. Here's Chris Bowen at the same Press Club address spruiking the transmission projects called on in the integrated system plan.
1: Now we're fortunate as we embark on rewiring the nation that we have the blueprint ready to go. Tomorrow's ISP will set out the timelines for delivery of major pieces of transmission infrastructure. It'll set the dates for critical projects like the Marinus Link that will connect Tasmania's Hydro to the mainland with new undersea cables and Hume Link and the second interconnector between Victoria and New South Wales that will allow electricity from renewable and dispatchable sources to flow from where it's generated to where it's needed in our homes and industries.
0: The phrase gold plating disappeared from the lexicon in the roundabout 2018-2019. Uh, I'll put this down to the Renewables Lobby, realising that they needed to spend a lot of money on the high-voltage transmission grid, otherwise their plans for (laughs) world domination could not be uh, borne out. Like most politicians who gain access to the taxpayer credit card, Chris Bowen is not afraid of spending other people's money. In the remainder of his press club address, he goes on to discuss his... I believe, megalomaniacal vision for central control and planning of Australia's electricity grid.
1: Now important as the ISP is, it's not enough. It only covers electricity transmission. Our transformation needs to be more than transmission. We need an integrated national plan which covers all the investments needed for a renewable economy. The plan needs to cover what storage we need and where. It needs to cover what green hydrogen we need and the pipelines we need to get it around the country. It needs to cover all the necessary investment. It needs to cover the vital enablers to that program, like the upskilling of our workforce and making things in Australia again. There you have it, Chris
0: Bowen, with their outlining his plans for our Australia's energy systems. Note the quick reference to pipelines transporting green hydrogen around the country. Uh, yeah, mate, don't think so. <laughs> Enough of Chris Bowen. Remind me, Simon Holmes a Court, why we're doing this again?
3: Keeping global warming to less than two degrees, well less than the two degrees, preferably 1.5. And if we don't manage to do that, we might as well say goodbye to the reef. The unprecedented fire events that we've had recently will become every other year, and large parts of Australia will become both uninsurable and unlivable.
0: Australia's favourite uh, green slash teal activist, there, Simon Holmes a Court, appearing on Q and A earlier this year, leading up to the COP26 meetings in Glasgow. Uh, and of course, that's all about the Paris Agreement and Australia's new Paris Agreement. Our nationally determined contribution, our NDC, has been, uh, I don't know, is it reduced or increased? Whatever it is, it used to be 28% below 2005 levels. Now it's 43% below 2005 levels. In, in real terms, uh, 2005 emissions levels were around about the 600 and a bit Megatons per year. Uh, in the twenty, to, the twenty-eight percent targets were going to take us down to about four hundred and forty, and the forty-three percent targets will take us down to about three hundred and fifty megatons. That's Albo's pledge. Of course, Australia is not the only country hell bent on destroying its energy security. Let's take a quick look at California. California urged residents yet again to conserve energy during peak hours as the state faces the biggest blackout risk of the year amid a brutal heat wave. Everyone
2: has to do their part to help step up for just a few more days. In the early morning hours, particularly tomorrow and the next day or so, pre-cool your home. Run your air conditioning earlier in the day when more power is available. Close your windows and blinds to keep your home cool as well. And today and tomorrow afternoon after 4 p.m., in particular 4 p.m., please turn your thermostat up to 78 degrees or higher.
0: Of course, most modern societies have an afternoon peak when people get home from work. This is, this is no different in Australia. That 4 p.m. till 8 p.m. is when the peak hits. And coincidentally, that's exactly when the solar output from all the rooftop solar and the solar farms all packs up and goes home. That's part of the sorry state of California's electricity system due to their renewable policies. On the electric vehicle side, they have policies to ban the sale of internal combustion engine cars uh, down the track. At the same time, they are limiting the ability of electric vehicle owners to charge their cars due to rationing power on the grid. As unbelievable as it sounds for a modern economy to be rationing power in in increasing amounts, by the way, this has been going on for a few years, but it seems to be getting worse as the proportion of wind and solar increases in the grid. What a surprise. Well, maybe it's not so much the increase of wind and solar, it's the decrease of dispatchable generation, such as nuclear, coal and gas. Spain is another country that seems proud of its progress on reducing its energy security.
3: Spain is applying energy-saving measures from this evening, in light of a potential gas shutoff from Russia this winter. Offices, stores, bars and restaurants will not be allowed to have air conditioning systems below 27 degrees in the summer. In winter, public premises will not be allowed to turn up the heating above 19 degrees. Despite a low Spanish dependency on Russian gas, Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez views this as a European commitment. We have to comply with the agreements we have reached in Brussels because regardless of the fact that Spain is better prepared eh, due to its geographical location compared to other countries countries that are are much much more dependent on on Russian gas or Russian energy energy sources such as Germany, Italy and other Central and Eastern
1: European countries, Spain also has a commitment of solidarity with the rest of European
4: countries.
3: Most vendors accept the measures, but it will differ from industry to industry. It's going to be impossible, because now we're at 18 degrees inside the ice cream palm. If we go up to 27 degrees, we're going to be sweating all day. The fridges give out a lot of heat, a lot of heat. Hospitals, health centers, schools, hairdressing salons and means of transport are exempt from the special energy-saving measures.
0: Another positive impact on the world there by the Paris agreements. In today's podcast, we're not going to go through all the countries around the world suffering from this uh, the plight of renewables infesting their electricity systems. However, Germany, with its well-documented problems, is worth a mention because of its influence it's had on New South Wales' Energy Minister slash Treasurer, Matt Keane.
3: So I guess what um, really... um got me passionate about the policy space was I'd just been handed the portfolio Gladys Berejiklian asked me to be her minister for energy and environment and the first thought was what have I done to upset you how did <laughs> what, what was asking did I did I offend you somehow I thought I'd been such a loyal supporter of yours <laughs> premier and you've given me this poisoned chalice but um pretty quickly after that I went overseas and I went to um, Germany and saw what was happening in Europe and how far ahead of the curve they were. And the penny dropped pretty quickly.
0: Uh, next minute.
3: What is expensive?
5: Because in these peak demands, the expensive gas comes into the market. So what we have to do is flatten the curve and uh, avoid the peak demands. We will propose a mandatory target for reducing electricity use at peak hours, and we will work very closely with the member states to achieve this.
0: Matt Keane there dropping pennies all over the place, while Europe heads to wartime conditions and rations power. So let's recap. We've had uh, new government spruking a massive spend on renewables and transmission lines, and new emissions reduction targets. It's it's going to be very interesting where all those emissions cuts come from. I don't think there's a chance in hell they'll get anywhere even close to it. I think the twenty eight percent was pretty optimistic, uh, j- because all the the easy the low hanging fruit's been done already. Now it's uh, now we're getting into the hard stuff. From the tone of the energy minister and the prime minister and the environmental. Minister, we're we're looking at some pretty interesting changes to environmental acts, and of course our economy is underpinned by the electrical grid, our electrical system, and everything that uses electricity is going to be affected, and not in a good way. In in my readings across the uh, across the internet, I came across uh, an interesting article titled "The Politically Incorrect Guide: to Global Warming and Environmentalism" by Christopher C. Horner. The comment sections under these online articles are quite interesting, and I recommend people have a read. You'll, you'll see plenty of good arguments there and plenty of additional information, and quite often it, uh, it, it can help you form your own balanced opinion. A post under this article, I'm going to read it out because it seems to sum up what we've been talking about here quite accurately. Here we go. When communism didn't work out, environmentalism became the anti-capitalist vehicle of choice drawing cash and adoration from business, Hollywood, media, and social elites. With the collapse of communist regimes, environmentalism emerged as a major vehicle for remaking society through a supreme central state. I find that pretty hard to argue with, to be honest. The majority of the debate on energy in Australia is is pretty disappointing. Here's Tony Wood, who is a senior advisor at the Grattan Institute, well-respected, highly intelligent bloke, But he puts out platitudes like this on social media. Here we go. Take a deep breath and absorb. Labor's climate bill will be enshrined in law. Symbolic or otherwise, and the hard work follows, this is a hugely important step for the government and for the country. Oh dear. Thanks, Vangelis. I guess I would say to Tony, take a look around the world and see how this is going so far. Australia is, I still believe, is a lucky country. We have all the resources. We have everything we need. Uh, obviously, we need to export our products and we, to grow our economy. If we banned all our exports of food and, and resources, we wouldn't have the money to develop them for our own uses, and we wouldn't be able to support ourselves. Everything would cost uh, a hell of a lot more. So I'd also say watch for the language of emissions reduction, shifting to less energy consumption, and... Uh, even though the entire point of this sustainable energy revolution was ostensibly to divorce the two. That's not happening. As you can see from Europe, California, Spain, the UK, and even Australia, power rationing seems to go hand in hand with the transition to renewables. So as I said before, looking around the world and how this is going is, is an obvious question. Here's how it was put to Senator Wong by Senator Ralph Babette of the UAP recently. My question is to
3: Minister Wong, representing the Prime Minister. Can the Minister name one country in the world where a higher share of solar and wind power has led to lower electricity prices?
0: My point here is not to highlight that this is an amazingly insightful question, because it's not. It's a basic question asked by inquiring minds every day. Senator Wong's response is pretty ordinary.
5: Thank you to um, the Senator for the question. Uh, And I, I would say to him that uh, it is not a, a highly contested position uh, by most who look at the energy market in australia that the cheapest new form of generation is clean energy uh, and in fact there is a, a live market experiment for that and that is the state of the electricity market the today uh, we, we we have four four gigawatts exiting uh, uh, one coming in during the the life of the previous government i, I think those those are f- The figures I I recall, uh, Senator McAllister will tell me if I'm wrong, uh, which reflects the lack of certainty in the market. uh, um, And the lack of certainty is a consequence of those opposites' failure to deal with their internal divisions as they do today.
0: Two minutes of waffle there from Senator Wong. I'll leave it to Senator Matt Canavan from Queensland to provide a little bit more relevance to the discussion.
1: Is anyone watching the news? Does anyone turn on a TV in this place at the moment? The German Greens Party, the Greens Party in Germany has reopened 21 coal-fired power stations this year. 21! We've only got 19 in Australia.
0: Rafe Champion, welcome to the Baseload podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving us a a once-over of your work history and background?
4: Well, I grew up on a dairy farm. I did agricultural science at Tasmania University. Uh, I got a good strong basis in 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 biological science. Uh, then I shifted to the social sciences and ended up doing a lot of work in health uh, planning, policy, and research into ser- delivery of services. That that's it's a planning, policy, and research background with an awful lot of writing, uh, especially in my spare
0: time as a hobby. So you're you're quite familiar with the uh, scientific basis and and bureaucracy as well, by the sounds of it.
4: Yeah, well, I was totally fed up with bureaucracy by the time I left. But the thing about the science, it took me a while to get interested in climate science because I had other other things on my mind. As it became more obtrusive, I realized I'd better say something about it because I was one of the very few people around with a scientific background who could hope to understand it.
0: A heads up to anyone listening. This is my first time interviewing somebody. Rafe is a, is a friend of mine. We've, we've talked quite a bit. So he's, uh, he's kindly volunteered to be my guinea pig today. So on the, uh, on the agenda, cause this is a, a baseload podcast talking about energy. What alerted you to the, uh, the climate change debate? I didn't even know about it until about 2017, 2018. I hadn't paid any attention. I knew about wind and solar. But I had no idea of this this massive push around the world and increasingly in Australia. So suppose what alerted you to the climate change debate and the renewables push and uh, how long have you been looking at it?
4: Well, I must have got alert around about two thousand and ten. An incredible stroke of luck. I went to Perth to give a talk about my favourite talk philosopher Karl Popper at an economics research education unit, along to the meeting, came, would you believe it, Joe Nova? and Christopher Monckton at the start of his tour of Australia. It must have been 2010 or 2011. So I got a, a, an off-the-cuff exposition of climate science from Christopher Monckton, and I realised it wasn't all that hard. It wasn't going to take me five years to get up to speed. I could do it a bit quicker than that.
0: So there are there are a couple of names from uh, from around the traps, around the internet. They're, uh, they're well-known. Is it fair to call them climate sceptics?
4: Well, they, they proudly fly the flag of of climate scepticism i I call it climate realism that in the same way as i talk about energy realism
0: you've been looking at this from about around about the 2010 and uh you introduced to the uh the skeptical side of the debate from the outset
4: after i got deep into the literature i I thought there's a desperate need or gap in the market for a book that people in the street could actually read people like ian plimer and others writing wonderful books but they're very fat and a bit out of reach for the ordinary uh, person in the street but something else was required so I started writing an introduction uh, but by the time I got halfway through two things happened one was I realized it was too late the argument was gone and the second thing was I took on Jeff Jeff Grimshaw as a co-author to do the heavy lifting in science and he took over the book and published it and I uh, went off and started wind watching to, to get stuck into the energy side of things
0: you mentioned something there that's quite interesting that the uh the climate changed you implied that the climate change uh science debate is is almost not worth it from from your perspective can you elaborate on that
4: yeah i'm just heartbroken at the amount of time that high people have spent fighting the climate war which was been lost hands down and is not going to be won anytime soon it's just tragic that. But we've got people plotting letters to cabinet ministers thinking about the latest findings in climate science though so that's going to make a tick a difference so hence i got to energy because i think we can we can win the energy debate in the street
0: i think um speaking about the politicians and the uh, and the science debate i from my perspective it feels that no one's terribly interested in in talking about scientific discoveries in terms of climate change they seem to be all the people who are involved seem to be happy to call it the, the science is settled. is a is a pretty common phrase that you hear when when you're talking about it. And if you if you say well is it, then you're straight away in the uh, deniers bucket with no chance of recovery.
4: Well, that's 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 why it's pointless fighting. If you're in the bucket, there's no point scrambling to get out. You've got to get into a different bucket where you can win the fight, and that's the energy bucket. I
0: have a I have a piece that I'll that I'll cut in later from Matt Keane from a, a Guardian Australia podcast. He seems pretty happy over there, but the, um, he was, he was explaining to Catherine Murphy, how he was inspired to go on his renewables journey and what, what inspires his, uh, policy outlook. And he quotes a uh, himself going to Germany and seeing Germany's policies in action as his, as his inspiration. <laughs> so now that, now that we're, uh, you know, a couple of years down the track and obviously there's, a uh, there's going to be quite some serious changes over there very soon, I'd imagine, given the uh, the political climate and what's going on with Putin turning the gas off. I wonder if he'd be interested in talking about that again. What do you reckon? What do you, What do you think of you're in New South Wales? What do you think of um Matt Keane's policies over the last couple of years?
4: Well, I think of just about as little as I can. Uh, it's so so stupid. But just getting back to the German situation in two thousand eighteen, there's an official report. On the progress of their green transition. This was a government report, and it officially said they were failing on all three three sides of their policy triangle. They were failing on price, they were failing on reliability and failing on emission reduction. That was official in 2018, and it's the second chapter in a book that I wrote, or started to write. Uh, The first chapter was the catastrophic impact of climate change policies on people, environments, economies, and budgets second chapter was the german trifecta of failure so if you want to learn something from germany you're not learning about the success of green transition and that was clear four five six years ago
0: a trifecta of failure what do they call it here the trilemma of um energy low cost low emissions and uh, high reliability but it doesn't seem to be going that way does it
4: no ord uh, resimple said it was going that way but what would she know? She, she, she's a politically connected software vendor. She doesn't know anything about generation or transmission.
0: Perfect person to put in charge of our uh, yeah market operations. That's for sure. Um, I do wonder when we'll get some uh, energy bureaucracy who uh, who get into the uh, the weeds of it. Maybe uh maybe Paul Broad can go in as head of AMO. That'd be interesting.
4: Yeah, well, someone I think Judith Sloan pointed out paper yesterday that there's actually what. Email is actually starting to get it worried. I mean, it's a bit late in the day, but they're actually starting to worry if they might be getting out of coal too quickly. I mean, that's a that's an amazing uh change of tone from them.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd like to see them change tack away from essentially planning the transmission grid to accept more renewables to actually uh working out what they're gonna what's gonna happen if uh Liddell closes and what's gonna happen if Auraring closes. I suppose most of the conversation to me in in Australian energy is focused on New South Wales. I mean, Victoria uh, being Victoria, they're, they're already subsidizing your lawn, a coal-fired power station to stay on. Uh, Queensland's are all government owned apart from one. They're all, they're all losing money hand over fist and, but not likely to be closed anytime soon anyway. For me, the focus is really on, uh, New South Wales in Australia. This is where all the action's going to happen in the energy debate over the next couple of years. And i know that you write some letters to your your politicians and co what's what's the latest thing you've written to them and have you got a response
4: well the latest thing i wrote probably yesterday to the senators telling them that if they had a once in a lifetime chance to save the nation by voting down the climate change bill
0: uh the the climate change bill which is going to lock in the 43 percent target is that right
4: yeah so this is a wonderful opportunity. How many often in their political careers do they get the chance to save the nation with one vote, alternatively, or alternatively to destroy it?
0: <laughs> with, with with intellectual heavyweights like the uh, the Teals and David Pocock and the Greens and and uh, Chris Bowen in charge, I mean, what would you expect?
4: What could go wrong?
0: Yeah. Uh, so you've you've written a few letters in the past to uh, your your senators and politicians. Have you ever gotten a response that makes sense?
4: Well, our our briefing notes from the energy realists, of course, go to 800 politicians, state and federal from coast to coast. And amongst the 800, there's about 50 that seem to be see things roughly our way. And occasionally they write back encouragement, which of course makes sense. It shows that they're on the right page. Uh, But of course, 99% are just standard stuff that you expect from politicians.
0: Okay, that's interesting. I've, I'm surprised there's that many who are uh, who actually uh, acknowledge that you're able to to make a reasonable point on it, rather than just dismissing you out of hand. We're talking about
4: 800 people, and that includes a scattering of you know, there's a one nation person here and there, and you know, there's a few liberals that make sense. We know there's about 10 or 15 coalition people in Canberra who make sense. So you know, it's, against 800, there's not many, but it's not
0: none. <laughs> Um, I suppose from my my point, I was thinking along the lines of trying to get the uh, the ones that might be on the fence to open up and and engage in the debate a bit more. Because preaching to the converted is is one thing, but trying to trying to get the message across to a wider audience is another.
4: Well, that's that's where you start talking about the the, the NIN, the National Information Network, uh, and this is designed to reach out into every federal electorate and get people in each electorate talking to their local member in a friendly persuasive and informative manner. Now, when the energy bill had started, we didn't have much to work on in the terms of community outreach. But over the last, since the last election, there's a whole lot of ex-candidates for minor parties who are right on the same page with us, and they're all equipped with their electoral teams, which they're deploying to fight the next election. And there's also a substantial number of community groups fighting local uh, wind and solar developments. And so we're going to have a network of people, teams and groups right across the country that will give us the capacity for major outreach and significant impact on local members as those groups
0: and people become more effective this is would you call it a grassroots campaign because you see this kind of activity pretty effective from groups like the greens and these are climate lobbyists So, uh, are we are you intending to turn the tables on them and use their tactics against them
4: well precisely uh the, this stuff gets to go throughout through every channel we can find down to the finest trickle from individuals and small groups who just get it out to their friends and relations but, of course, there's, there's independent bloggers, there's podcasters, there's a few local newspapers around the country that are on side. there's a few people on radio that are on side, and we're getting that together. We've got some wonderful material. Uh, we can explain things clearly with, with visuals. Uh, we can explain things about energy that we've never explained in a million
0: years about climate science, and that's why we can win this debate in the street. And, of course, the... Uh... The energy debate is up in front of people's faces now with bills getting higher and higher and people want to know why.
4: We've got the wind in our sails. People are becoming to feel pain and we can speak to their pain. We, we could never speak to their pain on climate science, trying to explain there's nothing to worry about. it never get through, they didn't understand the science and didn't want to even want to hear about it. But that, they're going to be very attentive to any coherent evidence-based uh, reason explanation for the, the pain in the energy
0: bills and
4: the blackouts.
0: So this leads me to one of my uh, next questions, which is, what do you believe is the end state of the, the current energy environment in Australia? What are the people you talk to think about it?
4: I'll tell you where, where I think it's going to end up, and it could happen if not when the Dell finishes closing, but when Iraring closes, we'll be eating cold breakfast in the dark. And cold dinner in the dark, and then after dinner you won't be watching TV or using your computer or your phone. Uh, you'll be wrapped up in blankets or something to keep warm to get through to a cold breakfast next day.
0: Rafe, you're not a, you're not expressing great confidence in the uh, political class to to solve this.
4: No, <laughs> I suspect you, I suspect you might share my lack of confidence.
0: <laughs> I, I sure do. I have no confidence in the politicians or their staffers, or even the bureaucracy that's meant to uh, give them good advice. I think it's all gone downhill since they are forcing this transition upon us unnecessarily. I think the uh, the the next five years are going to be pretty drastically different for, for Australians. The electricity prices and the gas prices are all going to go up. I think we're going to find ourselves looking at another round of subsidies and targets especially with this government locking, these, locking this into legislation, just to prove a point, really. Uh, but they don't understand the consequences and, and no one seems to be asking them. Never, never mind five years, try six to 12 months. How long can power-intensive industries
4: survive the flow-on of the wholesale prices into the retail prices? What do you do if you've got a business with fridges and stoves and, and that kind of thing?
0: Yeah, that's right. So it's not just the the big ones, like the aluminium smelters and the, and no, the refineries, it's all. also, it's your bowls, clubs, it's your restaurants. Uh, it's your, it's your small corner stores, uh, all those small and medium enterprises, the SMEs, they're all going to, going to struggle uh, greatly. It's taken two decades to get to this point. I think it'll take another five years for politicians to actually wake up and push back against it. And then it'll take another two decades to get out of it. And in the, in the meantime, we're just going to go backwards.
4: Who, who in the business community has showed any concern about the way things are going apart from people who are on side with it all like jennifer Westercott and all of those numpies in the big end of town
0: yeah they seem to they seem to be pretty happy to have uh, more handouts and, and more subsidies and more targets but no one's really talking about lowering the cost of living and lowering the cost of doing business uh, in australia so it's uh yeah it's it's going to be pretty drastic so in, in the last few minutes rafe what are some uh, what are your advice to the current round of politicians what do you, what do you think they should uh, do what compromises could they make to improve things
4: The problem is that, that they're driven by factional alliances they're driven by the party policy particularly the Labour Party they're driven by what they're told by lobby groups by and they're driven by what they're told by the people who should be to give them reliable information like CSIRO you I, I did some work as a postgraduate student working with world leaders in the CSIRO, that was a elite world cutting edge research institute 50 years ago, and now it has just become a political, drips managed by content free, politically corrected managers and the scientists that they're there, there. They're, 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 some of them no doubt doing good work. If your politicians and particularly in cabinet, they're, they're bound to take advice from what is supposed to be respectable sources and that ought to be CSIRO but if CSIRO has gone bad it's a real problem. The government is supposed to be run by responsible bureaucrats and responsible agencies and right now the, the, the bureaucrats have gone green and the agencies have gone green as well. I don't know what to say to politicians except
0: read what comes out from the energy realists and learn thanks for listening we'll be back in a week in the meantime if you like the podcast hit the like button subscribe to your friends